Welcome back. Thanks for joining this month's two-part episode of Extra Credit featuring guests Karen Andres and Josh Sled. If you haven't heard part one yet, give it a listen on our podcast channel. Otherwise, let's dive back in. So um, one of the things that I've gotten from this conversation is you folks are very focused on my words, not yours, but encouraging innovation, education, and cooperation. I'm going to go maybe into an area that might be a little sensitive, but what do you think the government's role is in terms of regulating structure of products? This is a little bit of like a bland answer, but I mean, I, th- I think it's critical. I think, um, I think we, I think people always need access to safe, high quality products. I think, especially in an era of declining trust, when people are losing trust in, in all the institutions, I think it's critical that people know that there's a, that there's a backstop there. Um, I think not to open like another can of worms, but like, I think we're seeing some really interesting examples start to play out in the crypto digital assets space, sort of re-examining the same question of like, you know, what is, what is the role of government? Um, I think it's essential for, for financial, for financial security, health and well-being, um, and for our functioning economy. I I think we absolutely have to have a really strong and clear set of, of guidelines. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that I must kind of think of it in three buckets along a spectrum, right? There's there's access to the good, right? When we see new products or or tools that can actually help people improve their financial health, how do we make sure that uh, we're setting up rules that create access to, again, affordable mortgages or or um, uh, just basic banking products that people can use to, to manage their money? I think in the middle, there's just basic disclosure, right? Just kind of do people know what they're getting and how do you make sure the market's fair and people are getting the information they need? And then on the other, on this other side, when there are harmful, deceptive, abusive products, getting them uh, regulated and potentially removed from the market. And I think to Karen's earlier point, having a consistent framework for measuring financial health can be really helpful there because then you have some objective measures of are these products actually helping or harming people uh, that you can use to inform kind of which of those uh, tools might be the most appropriate. So I think, you know, the government figuring out um, not only just how do we say no to the bad, but also opening up some some access to the good uh, can can really uh, uh, make a, a fairer and an easier marketplace for, for consumers to navigate. I also know that our current approach to a lot of regulation does impose a significant burden on financial services providers and innovators. Um, and that regulatory sort of management and compliance have become core competencies of some of our biggest, especially the heavily regulated financial institutions, very costly. Not having that can be a real barrier to entry for new entrants who may have innovative ideas. And I do think that we need some um, some some safe spaces for innovation, right? Because sometimes to get to that product or that tool that will produce or help support that optimal outcome for a customer, you do have to have, um, you have to give folks a little leeway to try some things. And I think we've seen some real steps forward in that regard over the last few years. I think we've seen some sandboxes like at the CFPB. There could be other ones, right? Uh, we were just having a conversation a few days ago about like what would it look like if in the retirement space there was a 
um, uh, an innovation sandbox for 401ks and what we could try to see if we could support better outcomes for workers. So I, I think that, you know, like the obvious statement is we have to have it, it's required for trust. And also we do have to make sure that we've built some, some safe, you know, paddling pools for, for innovators to try things. And I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you also both hit on outcomes. And and one of the things that we talked a lot about historically when we were working together, but even now is it's it's much easier to fixate on is something expensive or not, and 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 focus there versus really understanding consumer outcomes, sure. which uh, is oftentimes a little harder to get at. Yeah, absolutely. And letting that be the guide, right? Instead of our general perceptions of a particular product, what are we actually seeing happening? How, how are people mm-hmm. using this and um, where are they, you know, seeing it positively affect their their financial lives and, and where do we see having a negative impact? Mm-hmm. Well, and that gets to my point at the top about a role for financial institutions and, and providers of all kinds is sharing what you see, share, you know, sharing what is going on in your financial lives and um, finding a way to do that in a, in a policy context um, because that helps. I'll also say like, you know, as a private sector kind of person who's gone over to the spend some time with the public sector, you know, like, it's really hard to regulate products. It's really hard to write legislation and get it right. There are a lot of stakeholders um, and a lot of different sources of data. And so to watch, watching some of the discussions right now happening about a, a bill called um, Secure 2.0 on the Hill around retirement savings, like, boy, there are a lot of interests to balance and a lot of ways um, to run afoul of a lot of different uh data. So I just, just to say like their job is also really, really hard. And the more we can do to make regulators and legislators lives easier, I think we'll, I I think that's a, that's a real opportunity for the financial services sector. That's a great point. It is. Karen, going back to your um, comment about innovation and safe spaces, and this question is for you as well, Josh. Thinking back over the years, I know you folks have seen many ideas and products that had a lot of promise that never took off. You know, is there an example of one that that you could, you know, touch on and maybe mention why you think it never got the traction? And then, sorry, this is a long question. On the flip side, is there something that you saw start as a small idea that all of a sudden took off and has been going gangbusters? And any thoughts on why? I remember years ago, so this was at, CFSI, now Financial Health Network, somebody brought us a product design to look at, and it was called Tandem. And it was a combination of a, um, it was an account meant to be at a financial institution of some kind, uh, or possibly I think on a prepaid card, that was a hybrid of credit and emergency savings, right? That somebody would have a need. Um, it was like, it's like a secured card times emergency savings product where when you had some kind of big expense that you couldn't cover out of your transactional account, you were basically presented with an option of a little slider bar where like, I want to pay for this out of credit or I want to pay for this out of emergency savings that I've already accumulated in this account. And I'll say what I loved about it is that it acknowledged what is what is true in people's financial lives is it's just a need. It's just an expense that I have. And it it recognized that like fundamental tie between savings and credit that there's really no difference. It's how you pay for some things. The question is whether you save before or you save after, right? Like that's the difference. It's a temporal difference. And I love that it gave people that kind of flexibility. Um, I think it was ahead of its time, honestly. And I also think 
I think it was a product rather than a business model. I wonder if today that would have, in a world of you know VC and fintech, I wonder if if it might have taken a different form factor and might have found you know more success in the venture capital world. This was, was a little bit pre all of that, but I really loved the tandem the tandem product. Yeah, you know, I'll flag something that I wouldn't say it hasn't taken off, but it hasn't ever taken off in a way I think it should. And it's it's a very basic product. It's a secured card. Um, and, and I think, boy, there's been a, a shift recently that I think has been very positive. But historically, especially in some of the research and interactions we did with providers of secured cards, there was always this notion of offering it as a turndown product, that when somebody applied for credit and they didn't qualify, that you would then offer them the secured card, which I always thought was the wrong moment, right? If I had $500 for a deposit on a secured card, I wouldn't be here in the first place, right? The reason why I'm here is I have a credit need that I can't fill. And then particularly asking me to, to, to sign up for something to use that's not going to solve my need after you've just told me no, it's just not an ideal time, right? What you really need to do is get those kinds of products in people's hands before they realize they ever need credit in the first place. And I think what you saw happening, particularly, I think this is a good thing, but with the Card Act, and especially, you know, I remember going to college and there's, you know, tables with T-shirts and you can sign up for your credit card and for good or ill, that's how a lot of people got mm -hmm. their, their first uh, marks on their credit history. Uh, but without that option, in particular for younger folks, and especially given uh, the the environment they grew up, you see this real uh, sense of, of being averse to credit. Now, buy now, pay later, they seem to be interested in, which is odd to me, but just this notion of kind of credit um, being something to kind of stand away from. So I think there's this opportunity to help people start to think about credit as an asset earlier on and, and how do you build that with some of those products coming in. And you're seeing uh, fintechs take that up. If you sign up for a Chime account today, right after you get your debit card, the first thing they ask you is, would you like to open a secured card to start building credit? And we've seen folks like Self uh, really become a really successful fintech by offering really affordable, accessible secured cards that are made, I think, a lot more easier and efficient to process with some of the technology we've seen come along. So I'm really excited about, you know, well, where can we go with uh, kind of creating these credit building opportunities that we can present early on in people's lives that aren't necessarily building debt, but helping them to establish credit in, uh, in, in an effective way. So kind of taking something that's old and just repositioning it in a new way, I think uh, is, is looking like it might bear some potential. Yeah, I love those thoughts. All right, the flip side, something that was minor, maybe not even hit your radar screen that it exploded beyond what you thought was possible. Yeah. I'll, I'll start there. I mean, the big one for me is, uh, and you see it applied everywhere, but it's the the roundup notion from Bank of America years and years ago, right? First trying this. And I think they've worked with, don't quote me, I think it's IDEO um, that they partnered with on the consulting front and sat with people and saw that when they were writing bills, they would round up just to kind of make it easier for them to do the budgeting and get a little ahead. Um, and really realizing that that notion of having people when they're swiping their debit card round up to the nearest dollar and put that into savings uh, was a way a lot of people found it pretty efficient to start to save some money. And so I can't remember how much money they they wound up helping people save, but it was massive. It was massive, incredibly effective, something that people really uh, bought into and had a positive effect for Bank of America as well if it helped to incentivize um, you know, swiping uh, people using your card versus somebody else's. You're now seeing this used with, let's round up my purchases to pay down my student loans. Let's round up my purchases to pay down other forms of consumer debt or save up for some bigger goals or even split that up amongst a number of different financial goals. And so I think there's uh, something around that notion of something so small right that that can be so helpful um in terms of how it can can change some of those bigger pictures uh around kind of some of the, the savings so i'm always on the hunt for those things what are those things that we can do to adapt to people's behavior to not necessarily get them to do something differently but get them to have more successful outcomes based on their current behavior and i think roundup is just such a great example of that that's so funny you know 
speaking to our shared history, uh, those like Roundup savings tools were in the very first project I did for CFSI in the year 2007. <laughs> so like those have been a while, right? It turns out that's like an oldie but a goodie. I'll say like where my brain instantly went was with the 401k. Like that has its origins in like a benefits consultant, Ted Benna, just trying to like eke out a little bit of a something to give a client and using code for 401k. Um, I can remember the name of the act that it was in from 1978, but in 1980, he just designed this thing where he figured out a way for people to be able to put a little bit of money away. Fast forward to now, and there's like $10 trillion in this system, and it has become the primary way that Americans save for retirement. Lots to fix, much to do, but it is an incredibly effective wealth-building system for people who have access to it and have access to a high-quality plan. And I just, for me, the takeaway there is the small changes that get made to policy can echo and ripple into massive, massive impact. Um, and I'm always amazed um, uh, when I'm in conversations about whether it's legislation or a regulatory change, the way that those what seems like just a couple of words or like a relatively small item can can explode into massive systems change one way or the other, right? Sometimes to the good and, and sometimes less so. So making sure that we get that right and we bring to bear all the perspective and data, um, I think is this, the stakes are higher than we think, right? That's so interesting. I'd never thought about where 401ks came from or how long they've been around. One final question that, uh, that that's kind of a curveball, but for Karen and Josh, you both are parents of of young or younger children, and I'm curious, you know, thinking so much about what you do during the day, how do you think about your kids and what you teach them or how you expose them to money, financial topics in general? And, and I assume many of the folks listening to this also have their own children and they'd be interested in in the approach that you take. Yeah, I'll, that's a good question. I'll, I'll start. I mean, I think the biggest thing I'm starting to realize is just that the the ecosystem they grow up in is very different than the one I grew up in. And so that means some of the the right behaviors, quote unquote, right, are, are very different. I remember talking to a family member of mine and they were saying, oh, these kids these days, they don't even know how to balance a checkbook. And it's like, well, they don't know how to churn <laughs> butter or use a telegraph either. Like, you know, that doesn't seem to be a problem. So these things that we think of as as what's prudent financial behavior, uh, the activity of it looks very different. So even trying to give my my eight year old son, you know, he wants to start earning money for little things that he wants to buy here or there, and he wants to get an allowance. And even the notion of giving him cash, particularly over the last couple of years in the pandemic, was well, what for? We weren't going to many stores. Many of the things he wanted to buy, maybe like a video game or something like that, that is much more digital. So how do I start to introduce him to the digital financial services ecosystem? How do I make sure he's protected? How do I make sure uh, that that, you know, is the tactile experience of having dollars and coins, uh, you know, a different sense of saving and using money than, than doing that digitally? And so it's it's really forced me. I think it's a benefit that I think about this stuff a lot for, for my job, but to think about some of those products and tools uh, and how they can really contribute to a, a healthy financial life. Some of the, I think the basics are always going to be there. You know, you want to save money, accumulate, um, try to try to build wealth, limit your um, uh, you know, use of credit. There's some basic things there, but just understanding that the, the ecosystem he's going to have to navigate and uh, he and my daughter are going to be very different than mine. And so having that open mind 
uh, and and appreciation for well, what's what's key here, what's important, and how do I start to uh, introduce them to those things maybe earlier than um, I, I, I may have thought of doing so uh, in, in, in the past. I've never mm -hmm. thought about that, but I suppose a lot fewer piggy banks sitting on, on dressers than when we were kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally, totally. I hear a lot of talk about in like the mom's Facebook group where I live about like, what is the account tool that you guys are using to teach your seven-year-old how to, how to bank or how to manage money? I mean, I think it's hard for me to get away on like a personal level from, uh, you know, I, I do want them to understand the value of money. Right. And part of that for me is, you know, I kind of want them to, I want to set them up to make some, a few like low stakes, bad decisions early so that they feel the pain of having like spent their money on something that turns out they don't want for like mm -hmm. more than 20 minutes. Right. So how do I set them up to feel what it's like to spend money in a way that they don't actually feel good about more than 20 minutes later? I'll also say, you know, for me, it's important that that my kids understand the way this economy doesn't work for everybody and like the places where it's structural, you know, um, and I want him, to, you know, to understand why some people in our community uh, struggle with X or Y or Z in their financial lives. And like also, you know, I, I want him to get to that point to make to set him up for better financial decisions for himself I want him to, to to be an advocate for for other people right I think I think we're at a moment like meta in our society of beginning to I hope we are of beginning to sort of step back from just the personal responsibility narrative um and I want him to be able to like understand that um frankly a lot earlier than I did I think it would be good if my kid went into and my kids I do went into their into their lives with a a a sense of the way that our our policy structures are delivering different outcomes for different people. Um, that's I think that that matters to me, um, given you know the relatively fortunate position I feel that we're in. Great, no, I appreciate that. Craig, anything else from you? Well, once again, our guest outshined us, so really appreciate it. We thank you again, Karen and Josh, for joining the podcast. This is so fun. I appreciate you catching up and, and your perspectives as always. Thank you.